صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, listeners. Uh, NASA joining you live from the studio today. The boys have got another sleep in, but excitingly, I've got a super guest from um, from Palestine, Mel, who's going to join us uh, to discuss her work. Um, but before that, I just want to um, make sure that our listeners are, are downloading our podcasts. They're at 3cr.org.au and your backslash Palestine Remembered. Um, some great stuff. Then we've had a lot of um, positive comments from our, our um, work dissecting Trump's peace plan. But... Over to our new our guest here. We've got Mel, who's an Australian woman, um, and uh, a, a fantastic human being, and someone of uh, with a really really fabulous story she's going to share with us. So, welcome, Mel. Um, hi, NASA. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. Now, Mel, um, you're you're a lawyer, yes. and you've had a fantastic journey, uh, a human rights journey. And as a Palestinian, we always um, um, appreciate the solidarity, not only of brown people, because it's easy for NASA, the Palestinian, to empathize with somebody from West Papua, for, for an indigenous uh, uh, boy or girl. Um, those with privilege, and we'll call it what it is, you know, white privilege, that choose to advocate for those that are oppressed, whether it be whatever minority or um, indigenous people, and, and obviously for Palestine, remembered for Palestine, when people use their skills, their um, their privilege to advocate and help the Palestinians, it's something that we... We truly love. So, why don't you tell us how your, your initial story, of, you know, about um, where you were and how you got to Palestine? Because it's it's really cool. Oh gosh. Okay. Um, yeah. So I'm a human rights lawyer, and I've worked in um, the law for about on and off for about ten years. Um, and I started out um, as a legal aid lawyer working in in human rights, and that took me on a journey to to London, and then I somehow. On a whim, ended up in East Timor, Timor-Leste, as it is actually called. Um, and I spent two and a half years there working with uh, Timorese activists in, a, in the oldest human rights organisation in Timor-Leste. Um, and really, I have to say that they taught me everything that I really understand about the world. Um, I'm still in contact with them and I still try to get back to Timor on a fairly regular basis. Um, and they really opened my eyes to the struggles of um, oppressed people. Obviously, the Timorese themselves were occupied and oppressed for a very long time by the Indonesians, but they introduced me to the struggle of the West Papuans, of the of Western Sahara, that sort of thing. Um, and actually, it sent me back to Australia. Um, I didn't want to become that Westerner that was just travelling around the world, working for the United Nations, not really understanding people. Um, and I came back to Australia and started working, um, worked to set up a legal aid office um, up on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And there um, engaged with the, the Dungadi, the Birupai and the Waramai people on the north, the mid-north coast. Um, and, you know, that continued my journey and I learned a lot about um, 
Indigenous struggle in Australia, um, which was actually quite devastating to to realise the, the the way that um, structural oppression operates, um, and uh, you know that work. Um, I, I don't know. It kept, I don't know how to say it. Like it kept me it kept me going for a very long time, but it also. Um, burned me out <laughs> and on a whim I decided uh, in my burnout to go on a holiday to Palestine um, as you do uh, the West Bank's a logical you place to end up, up you open up the brochure and see the sunny beaches yeah. and the, the, <laughs> one of the, what are those drinks with umbrellas in them and you go you know what that, that's the place I've got to go Palestine absolutely um, and to be honest I mean it seems a strange choice but I couldn't have picked a better place to go um, and that seems a strange thing but um, the West Bank is I find it a really hard place to talk about because, and Palestine in general, a hard place to talk about because it is actually a really beautiful place and the people are amazing, the culture is incredible, the hospitality. But at the same time, I don't want that to take away from the reality as well and it's hard to get this balance between the two. But, um, yeah, I turned up in the West Bank on my relaxing holiday and um, I randomly happened to meet a Palestinian, which is so out of character for me, Um it feels odd saying that, but I met him. Um, he was working at the uh, the Banksy Hotel, which if you're Palestinian, mm-hmm. you probably know it. It's, uh, we could probably talk about yeah. <laughs> the Banksy Hotel well, well, a little. If we have time, we'll come back to that. But let's, because yeah, yeah. I mean, Mel, the reality is you, you've given up privilege, uh, uh, the opportunity to live a wonderful life, you know, using your um, skills to um, help and advocate for oppressed minorities around the world, but then ended up arguably in the worst place. For, for, for the level of um, oppression that exists. And then you've gone from white girl from Australia to proper pallo. So let's go yeah, into... Yeah, Dehesha refugee camp. Um, yeah. In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. Um, yeah, that was interesting. Um, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into, but I wouldn't say... I mean, yes, there's, there is an element of giving up a lot of privilege, but um, at the same time, I got a hell of a lot back. Um, I didn't for a second regret it. Um, it was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Dehesha, although it was interesting when I got to Palestine, um, what other fellow Palestinians would say uh, when I said I, you know, was um, dating this guy from Dehesha camp and people were like, why Dehesha? What are you thinking? Why would you go to Dehesha? scary. I've never stepped into Dehesha. And this was quite interesting to me because my only experience of Dehesha was that it's a community it's it's almost like a giant family. So to explain a little bit about Dehesha refugee camp, um, Bethlehem has three refugee camps there, Aida, Aza and Dehesha, um, and they've been there since 1948. Um, most of them are refugees from the southern villages of Jerusalem who were um, ethnically cleansed from the land in 1948. Um and they live to this day in these camps. Um, they're not what you know the ordinary Australian might imagine a refugee camp to look like because they've been there for seventy-two years. They are built-up um, areas of Greater Bethlehem, but um, you can always tell when you see a refugee camp mm. the the density of the housing, um, lack of the, open space, lack of open space. The, the you know people are on top of each other. The electricity wires that are just mm-hmm. running absolutely everywhere. Um, but there's a real there's sixteen thousand people that live in Dehesha camp. It's it's um, probably going to get this slightly wrong, but it's only about a square mi- a square kilometre mm-hmm. or two square kilometres. It's a tiny space, um, but it's like one giant family. Um, and if you know it, 
then it's it's quite a welcoming place. So it was it was really interesting to me to get there and have Palestinians tell me I was crazy for wanting to live in um in Dehesha camp and wasn't I scared and all this sort of stuff. It was surreal yeah. actually. So so you're there and, and you're dating this Palestinian guy. Um and, and, and the family is um uh they actually returned. They didn't return to their ancestral homes, but they were actually outside of Palestine yep. and they came home. Yes, yeah. So they were living in um Kuwait for quite some time um, and then around the time that the Oslo Accords, I assume your listeners will know what the Oslo yeah. Accords were in the early 90s and they were signed, the family made a decision to... Um, we were all filled with hope. I mean, we were here in Australia, uh, Mel, and, and my dad thought, you know, it's, we, we're, we're, you know, more than one step closer, we're five steps closer and, you know, if you were absolutely. a Palestinian in a neighbouring Arab state, you know, you were, it was an easier move back than it was for us from Australia, but, you know, yeah, we 100%. Were, what do we need to do to get there? Yep, 100%, yeah. And I think, um, I, I don't know that I can speak particularly authoritatively on this, but um, I think there was hope coming home. Um, that was shattered pretty quickly. Absolutely. I mean, the reality of what we know, the great lie that was Oslo that's you know perpetuated to this point where Trump releases the deal of century or uh, legalised uh, and approved apartheid, is um, we were never going to get justice. No, Whilst no, the Palestinians, the and as you know, now as a honorary Palestinian, you know, are, are, are people filled with uh, a sense of honour and that, you know, we judge you by your words um, and then we'll hold you to account by your, um, by your actions. Yeah, 100%. And, and the concept of shame, that, but you said and you didn't act that way, so you should be ashamed. Wow, we won. Well, that's, not a, that's, that's a, a construct of, you know, our culture where, you know, if you failed somebody, you would not... You would be. You wouldn't walk the streets. You'd want to leave the village. You know? <laughs> Whereas, you know, in in a Western construct, that's deal making. So if you're, if you're a Zionist and you go, oh, I signed that and they believed me, you're walking tall and prouder because you robbed somebody. You know, your your you, your deceit gave you advantage, um, which is not 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 something that we we understand. No, and it's interesting you should say that because I feel. Um that's sort of obvious when you walk, when you travel around all over Palestine. If you if you go into Jerusalem, you can there's there's such a sense of difference in the energy and the culture of the two communities we're talking about, the Israeli community and the Palestinian community. And I think that that kind of attitude is is so clear when you're traveling around. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a sense of entitlement that I found very difficult to confront. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't imagine what it is for a Palestinian to come up against that entitlement that exists. Yeah. Um, so I, I, you have a very personal and heartbreaking story, Mel, and I don't want to go too deeply because <laughs> it is so personal. But um, you, 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 the guy you started dating, you married him. Um, he's one of seven. He's the apple of the family's eye, tertiary educated. Um, due to his actions, can't get work, um, has significant um, health challenges, and... Uh, at his brother's wedding, um, dances himself to death, has a heart attack and dies. So not only have you gone to, to, to Palestine and given up your privilege and uh, become a Palestinian, you've also become a widow. So um, you've lived that um, the, a very real Palestine. Um, and uh, not and in honour, I mean, I, I know that you had your job and you're, you're, international, you're a human rights lawyer and you're working with Badil, who are a fantastic resource um, for for the Palestinians, um, and you and the Badil does a lot of work, and people can go to badil.org.au. Uh, 
www.ethicsdigital.org and download some of the um, very impressive legal um, uh, papers and briefings that you produce. Um, the, the most recent one, obviously, is to deal with the Trump plan. Um, but Badil's work particularly is uh, around refugees, about yes. right of return. Yep. Um, so perhaps you can tell us a bit about your work. Um, yeah, so uh, Badil is a job my husband actually got me <laughs> as a refugee himself. <laughs> That's how it works. Um, he thought it would be an appropriate job given my background um, and uh, ended up being an interesting organisation to work for. Um, I was really quite proud to work for them actually. They're one of those rare Palestinian organisations that actually talks about um, the whole of mandatory Palestine. Um, so whenever we do a research report, we try not to talk only about the occupied territories of Gaza and the West Bank, but also about um, the way in which um, Israeli policies affect the whole of the Palestinian population. So whenever we do our research, we do a lot of legal research trying to understand um, Israel's policies as they operate today and how they affect Palestinian, particularly Palestinian refugees, internally displaced people, um, and how they create new refugees and new internally displaced people. Um, so that's one half of the work we do. The other half of the work we do is trying to take that into Palestinian refugee youth and educate them about their history, about their rights, and how to become advocates. Um, so one of our more recent uh, pieces of research was every couple of years we produce a, a survey of the Palestinian refugee population around the world. Uh, we try to figure out the numbers. We work with UNOA, which is the UN refugee um, organisation specifically for Palestinian refugees. We work with their data, but we also work with the, the, the Palestinian Authority and their data um, and do significant research trying to figure out the population around the world of Palestinians and the spread. And every year when we release that, we, we do a bit of an update on the history and we also go and survey um, the refugee population. So last year um, for our survey, we decided to interview Palestinian refugee youth particularly. Um, and we interviewed a thousand youth in the West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, Gaza, and also um, internally displaced people with Israeli citizenship within what's Israel. Um, and we interviewed them not about the right of return, but we, because for us this is just a given, everyone has the right of return and we didn't want to have a debate about this. But the, the question on the survey we asked them about was the practicality of return. Um, so what do youth understand to be possible and what would return look like, a possible return look like for them? So we got some really interesting results out of that actually. Um, so... What we'll do is we'll just quickly take a break and then we'll come back in just a moment. 3CR are selling kefir, Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Uh, and you're back with 
Palestine Remembered and Nasser Mashni. Uh, we're joined with, by Mel from um, Badil. So Mel, continue on from your survey. Um, what, what were the findings? Yes, yeah, so um, one of the most interesting findings for us was the level of belief in the in the realisation of return. So as I said before, um, we didn't ask people about whether they believed in the right of return. We asked whether they believed that return would happen one day. Um, and overall, 81% of the youth um, had a belief that it would happen one day. And what was super interesting about that is if we took the, the youth that were living in Israel with Israeli citizenship out of the equation, so we only considered the youth from Gaza or the West Bank, Jordan and Lebanon, that belief that it would happen one day rose to 97%, which is quite an incredible finding. Um, uh, the reason it's so low for youth um, who live within Israel with Israeli citizenship is probably a reflection of of the degree to which they've been oppressed by the Israeli so, government. So to, to be clear, 97% of you include non-48ers. Including 48ers, you're at 81%? When you say 48ers, you mean Palestinians with Israeli... Yeah, yeah, correct. Yes. So, so they're probably, if we average it out, they were, might have been around 60% or 70%. They were much no. They were much lower. Even they lower did, than that. Even lower than that. So they okay. had about a thirty forty percent belief okay, that it would be realised. Okay. Because um, one one of the the things that Israel's done so well is create this legal construct to separate the Palestinians. You know, you you're forty eight. You're East Jerusalem resident. You're West Banker. You're refugee in yep. West Bank. You're Gazan and you're refugee outside of Israel. And they've sucked the world into dis, um, well, discriminating and, and uh, compartmentalising each of these various Palestinians instead yes. of saying, hold on, we're Palestinians, we're all the same, we all uh, should be treated under the same legal network, which should be international human rights. Yes. If a Jew can claim a right of return 2,000 years ago just because his uh, his mum celebrated God on a Saturday and he had a bat mitzvah or she had a bar, uh, uh, he had a bar mitzvah and she had a bat mitzvah, then surely my son, Nasser Jr., because we run out of cool names, Mel. Um, he has a right of return predicated on the fact that you know his grandfather was ethnically cleansed against his will from his lands. Yeah, hundred um, percent. But that's a that's a right completely denied to every single Palestinian. Um, and Israel has a really interesting way of even achieving this for Palestinians who remained within the borders of what became Israel. Um, they have this. They have the. Um, absentee property laws that they pass that, you know, every Palestinian that left their land in 48 and wasn't on their land when the state was created was declared an absentee. And then for the Palestinians who were still within what was this became the state of Israel, they were declared this present absentee, which is this rather confusing term. Orwellian. Or, or <laughs> now, when you're creating the laws, you're just Absolutely. present absentee. I mean, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and Israel are actually really very good at this. This isn't what we try to show with our research. They're very good at using the law to give this veneer of legality to everything that they do. And then if you actually dig into it or look behind it, you understand it's completely unlawful. It's a complete manipulation of what the law is. So, you know, of course, the right of return was no different and the way that they kept people. And so you have Palestinians who, who are for all intents and purposes, citizens of the state of Israel, and they have never been able to return to their original homes. They've been completely denied this right. In fact, very often Palestinians live in their home. Other Palestinians live in their homes, and um, this is the way the, the state sets up a structure. The state sets up a structure that puts people against, sets people against each other. Um, but, yeah, it, 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 
it's an interesting state of affairs where um, you have the results that we got from this survey for the, the youth that were that are more directly under Israel's power were far more depressing, I guess, um, perhaps because they live with the daily sense of the strength of Israel's power and control over their lives. Yeah. I mean, the reality is if you are a 48er, you, you are as A-class as a Palestinian can be within historic Palestine. And, and I say A-class, you know when you're A-class Ashkenazi Jew, I mean, you're still yeah. class 6A, you know. You're not a Sephardic Jew, you're not an Ethiopian Jew, you're not a Druze, you're not a Bedouin, you know. You're still, you know, a, a lowly Arab. Um, the, the strength of that number, 97%, that's got to be predicated, or it's got to be a result of um, the, the pressure of being a Palestinian in the West Bank. You know, you've got to have some hope. Otherwise, I mean, you know, in those refugee camps, I was just in Ada in September, October. Mm-hmm. I mean, you see the kids. I mean, they're full of joy and they're running, you know, with their school bags and kicking a football along and you think, it's fantastic. But, I mean, there isn't much space. So you need something, surely. Yeah, and, I mean, we, we sort of were trying to dig into the results and understand it and we kind of came to the conclusion that it was just, it is so inherent to someone's identity, this right of return, Mm-mm. that... Um, you know, as you say, like the the kids in in Dehesha camp, in Ida camp, they're happy, they're laughing, they're yeah. running around. I mean, and they're gorgeous kids, absolutely beautiful kids. I mean, yeah. and uh, yeah, I mean, I'm so I'm so filled with love and joy. And I was just talking last night to my husband's um, nieces and nephews that he's got got absolutely beautiful kids, um, and they understand happiness on a different level mm-hmm. uh, in a sense. But so you've got the kids in the West Bank, then you've got the kids in Gaza. Their situation is you know, objectively worse. Mm-hmm. Um, Lebanon is also similarly really, really oppressive and really, really difficult for Palestinian refugees. And and Jordan, there's a perception, I don't know how accurate it is really, that the situation for Palestinians in Jordan is, is better. And yet the, the results that we got across the three areas didn't reflect any particular trend. It wasn't, you know, it... it, it we didn't believe the results didn't show that this was sustained. This belief in in that return would be realised was sustained because of the humanitarian situation, um, or the human rights, or the fact that they don't have citizenship. It's not sustained by these factors, which is something America try, and and yeah. Israel try to say is that this belief Anwar and the fact they stay as refugees is is what sustains this belief in return. And we sort of said the results don't bear that out. Mm. It's it's. It's something Palestinians. It's innate. It's something people want, and it's it's important. It's critical to who who we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that was one of the most critical results. The other really interesting result, which I think parallels off that, was that when we asked people about okay, what's the political solution within which you think that return will be most sustainable, and the results again showed that it didn't. You know, people were a bit split between one state, two state solution, this sort of thing. But what was abundantly clear was whatever it had to be returned to the original homes so you can't create you know a a palestinian state within the borders of 67 and say okay you can return to the borders of 67 if your home is in 48 Mm -hmm. um people don't want this this was absolutely rejected as one of the options and so what was really clear to us was well how do you have a conversation about the the solution if we're going to call it that Mm -hmm. um that doesn't factor in the right of return. You have millions of refugees who retain this belief in the right of return. Mm. And if you're not going to have a conversation about that, you're never going to get a sustainable 
durable solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what was really interesting about the results. Well, we keep saying, you know, there, there is uh, no peace without justice. Absolutely. And without return, there is no justice. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, look, you know, I, I was interviewed earlier in the week. My father's first girlfriend, she was Jewish. She was Palestinian. Yep. Just, yep. You know, she celebrated God on a different day, but that didn't mean that they couldn't live together. Yeah, 100%. And, 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 yeah. and, and it's very real, the uh, intermarriage um, previously, before 48, and even now it still happens, particularly within 48 and uh, yeah. across, uh, across borders. Very quickly, two, two quick questions. We've only got a couple of minutes left now. Um, funding, the challenges you're facing post-Trump, and, uh, you know, everybody's a terrorist if, you're, if you speak. Palestinian, or, or yep. Palestinian. <laughs> um, and, and what can our listeners do? Well, um, on the funding question, yeah, it's it's a big issue right now in Palestine for Palestinian civil society. Um, the EU, off the back of the US, actually, um, it's been a building for a little while, but has now made all their funding conditional on every NGO vetting every individual staff member about their connections with Palestinian political parties. Um, alongside that decision um, in the, their grants of aid, um, they suddenly listed a whole bunch of new... Palestinian organization, political organizations as terrorist organizations. Um, and so what it basically means is that they're criminalizing and um, outlawing any kind of political activity from a Palestinian. Um, and these are political parties that um, are simply that, they're political parties, but they also engage in resistance, which is a legitimate right uh, protected by international well, that, law. That's happening on the ground internally. Externally, we're weaponizing anti-Semitism. Yes, uh, in the in the Trump plan, there's a, a whole section on what uh, on the mechanisms under which the Palestinian state can join international forums, and they they have to renounce any opportunity to take any future or past uh, Israeli or American um, uh, uh, person to any international court or human rights actions. I mean, anyway, we've only got a little bit to go. Uh, another minute, a bit. Uh, but how can we help? Oh, how can people? Please. I think people need to talk. They need to talk about this. They need to be bold, stand like speak out. Because, I mean, the reality for me and what I witnessed, experienced, saw, it is just flat out wrong. Um, we need to talk to our politicians. We need to encourage them. We need to have real conversations about the issue of anti anti-Semitism is real. But we also need to confront. Um, false allegations of and be bold in the face of that because Palestinians have a right to equality, to be treated as human beings, to be seen as human beings. Um, and what is happening is just there is absolutely no justification for it whatsoever. And so I think I feel urgently compelled to speak out and um, speak up. And I think every single one of us needs to start saying that this is not okay. Um, and we're not going to stand for it, and then create the space for Palestinians to step up and actually have a conversation about how do you resolve this. Fantastic. We've been joined by un- our undercover sister, Mel, <laughs> from, from Palestine. Um, thank you so very much uh, for sharing your story with us. Um, stay tuned, listeners, for our next show, uh, the next show at 10 o'clock, the Radioactive Show, and be sure to tune in next Saturday for Palestine Remembered. Thanks for listening. The wind upon the waters and the shadows as the leaves.